Hello, my name is Diabolical Dave Hanratty, and there will be a Halloween special of No Encore. I'm joined in the studio by um, uh, Satanic Sonic Architect Adam. <laughs> that was my evil laugh. Um, very, very bad. But yeah, great to be back. Great to be back. Spooky season. Did you like the new theme song, Dave? I know you did. I loved making Can that. Can I just say, listener, Adam is so happy with his work there in combining the Saw, Hello, Zep, ending of the movie, Sting, with our own, of course, Bantam-supplied intro music, Move by Bantam, an amazing song. Which I have to apologise to Rory because I have done so many horrible versions of his wonderful song. So thank you for the thank you for not giving out to me for it, first of all. And second of all, yeah, thanks for thanks for allowing me to you know, put my little spin on it this time. I might do a couple more themed theme songs in the future. We never know. We'll find out. Well, we'll also find out who our guest is this week, our guest co-host, returning to the show for the first time in quite some time, a prolific musician, a horror movie enthusiast, which is helpful for this episode, because we are doing a sequel, Top 5 Horror Movie Scores to The Revenge. Zara Hedeman and I did it before a while ago. So I haven't picked anything from that one. It's a brand new go-round, the best in horror movie music. And to join me on this episode to take us all through it is, of course, the one, the only, Paddy Hanna. Thank you very much, Dave. And that was great what you did with the theme song there. It was like Lyric FM, the way they have someone doing the, <laughs> you know, whoever, do you think whoever wrote the dun, 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 is cheesed off that people keep doing versions of it? I say no. So, yes, greetings, everybody. Welcome to the spooky season. I've got a can of Mango Loco. I've got my Joe Bob Briggs t-shirt on and I am ready to talk spooky things. Let's do it. Let's do it. But first, uh, remind us of your many current musical projects and where we can find you online and what we can listen to and where we can go see you, etc. Well, thank you very much, Dave. I actually have a list of plugs here because I always forget. Um, You've got a tablet, everybody. Yeah, I know. Out comes the tablet. So first and foremost, the most pressing thing is that my, not my, but rather a band with whom I make up one quarter, Outremond, have released our most recent album and it is called Sensitive Assignments. It is available in stores Online, um, just Google Outremond and you'll find us. Um, That is out. We're in the midst of our Irish tour at the moment. So by the time this comes out, that information will not be of any value to you. Hours from now. This is coming out hours from now. Oh, is it good? Well, I mean, if you're listening to this (coughs) and it's Friday, come to Bellow Bar. (laughs) But, uh, you know, look, you know, but run. (laughs) Anyway, if you're a late commute listener, that's right. Switch that. Get loose, off that bus. Change right that loose line. <laughs> get to the Bella Bar. There are some Ultramont gigs coming up uh, in December. Uh, they haven't been announced yet. There is one really, really cool gig we're doing on New Year's Eve. I just, I don't think it's been announced yet, but we are playing a New Year's Eve gig somewhere in Ireland with a really, really great band. Uh, you might be able to figure it out. Okay. Also, uh, if you want to see me personally live. Um, you're going to have to buy a ticket to India because that's where I'm playing in December. I'm doing a mini Indian tour. I'm doing two dates in Mumbai and I'm doing a third date in New Delhi uh, from the 19th to the 22nd of December. Those dates will be announced shortly. I'm very excited. I've been inoculated. So if you try to give infect me with typhus, you're going to be bang out of luck because <laughs> I am officially typhus free and I'm ready to rock. Um, so yes, I will be doing an Indian tour in December. Um... If you want to hear any of my music, Paddy, Hannah, just Google it. Uh, it all comes up. I have four albums. Three of them are available to purchase in physical form. One of them is out of print. Um, it's good stuff. Uh, two of my albums were inspired by horror flicks, um, although um, not in the conventional sense. They're really more sort of 
um, maybe more the the subtle end as opposed to the Rob Zombie kind of white zombie end of horror movie uh, sound. uh, That's going to be your next one though, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just going to do, I'm going to have a music video that starts with a shaky camera that does a flash (laughs) zoom on a doll with no eyes. Uh, I'm just going to go. Static television that can't be turned off, but the plug's out. That doesn't make any sense. You see, see, the problem is my horror references in music are always very kind of coded and subtle. And oftentimes people who reference horror and music just go full balls to the wall. So perhaps I should do that. Um, Also, I am uh, sort of between now and March of next year going to be working on my next record. So uh, I can't give anything away about what it's going to sound like, but it does involve me learning a whole new instrument. Excellent. There you go. Paddy plays the saxophone edge. That was um, <clears throat> that was comprehensive. I enjoyed that. I know. I, I <clears throat> you would think that I spin a lot of plates, but for the most part, I just chase my child around the room. Yeah, it is a long way to go. It is. It is. So there you go. Those are the plugs. Okay. Okay. Have you been to India before? Uh, first time. Yeah, friends of mine went there recently and said it was quite the quite the quite the trip. I am told that Mumbai is a real party town. And that New Delhi is is more business centric, but it definitely has a fun. So you're going to wear uh, like a Hawaiian shirt in one of them and a business suit in the other. That you're absolutely right. I'll be sort of, <laughs> I'll be like a synth new wave band in New Delhi, and I'll be Jimmy Buffett in Mumbai. Perfect. <laughs> uh, you well, go. you know, he is unfortunately he has he has shuffled off this mortal coil, so we need a new Jimmy Buffett. So you know, I did a you know I used to be a tour guide, and I did a tour the day Jimmy Buffett played in Dublin. And one of his band were on my tour, one of the Coral Reefer band. And she said to me, well, I don't have any, uh, I don't have any tips to give you, but I do have four customized Jimmy Buffett plectrums. So I have four Jimmy Buffett Coral Reefer plecs that were given to me as a tip. Do you have them framed or? I, honestly, I, that is a plan. In a glass it's, case. It's on the list to have his framed <laughs> Jimmy Buffett Coral Reefer uh, plecs. Um also, I remember we shouted at the parrot heads while going past the Olympia on the Viking Splash boat. So there you go. Real Dublin reference for you. Okay. So listen, um, Jimmy Buffett, as we say, has, has, has left us. He's left the world. Is there anything more terrifying than the grim spectre of death? I would say, yeah, horror films. So we're going to talk about <laughs> horror films on this episode. Um, no news. We're going to forego the news this week because uh, horror is more important as far as I'm concerned. Paddy Hannon, before we get to our top fives, we are going to be looking at the very best in music written specifically for movies that are horror-based. Um, I want to know your relationship to the world of horror and your kind of the scariest thing you've ever seen, your first memory of horror film, your general kind of relationship with them today. Yeah, it's something I think about a lot. And, uh, you know, if, if you love anything, you always have to ask the question, where did this love affair begin? So I, I grew up in, in, in Castle Knock, right? Surrounded by the walls of the Phoenix Park. And always as a, as a young lad, this big, long wall was just, you know, within walking distance of our house. And my parents always said, don't go on, don't go past that wall. Stay away from the wall because you don't know what's on the other side. Now, this was parents being protective because, you know, there might be troublemakers hanging out in the park and they don't want their kids being snatched or whatever. But to a child who has not been clued in on this, this is absolute imagination fuel. Don't go beyond the walls. (laughs) You know, um, it was... So I I grew up sort of surrounded by these curios and also my father was an avid reader of horror 
uh, short stories, you know. He loved a bit of M.R. James. He liked a bit of Stephen King. My dad loved Stephen King, yeah. Mm-hmm. You can see some of the books lying around the house and I'd be scared of even even the covers of them. Exactly. Well, that was it. Like, you know, because I, I have very lazy reading habits. Uh, you know, I get distracted very easily, but I would spend hours looking at the covers of these collected horror stories. I remember there was one uh, where on the cover there was a, a person being strangled by a sort of eyeless ghost. Who, and uh, I mean, I, I just was, I, I, I stewed on these images and it wasn't, fear is not necessarily the word. It was, it, it was a weird fuzzy feeling. And I think it's like, it's like coriander, you know, either you think it's the most delicious thing in the world or it tastes like you know, soap. You know what I mean? And I think that's what horror is. It's the coriander of genres. <laughs> you know, you look at it and if it tastes like soap, no, not doing it, you know. But for me, it was the most delicious of all the fresh um, garnishes. So that's sort of where the germs of my love for horror came from. But if I had a come to Jesus moment, I know exactly where I was, um, the setting, everything. I was 10 years old I know this because my brother Leo, who's now an actor, by the way, uh, and uh, a, a horror enthusiast himself, he was he was being born at the time, and we were staying with my grandmother. Okay, myself, my my brother, and my sister. And one night, whilst my granny was asleep, my my brother said to me, "Psst, Padge, oh, uh, look, let's go into the 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 bedroom there, the guest room, because there's a movie on, and it's like I, apparently it's the scariest movie ever." And we've got to watch it quiet, though, because Granny's asleep in the other room. So we all huddle into this room. And it was one of those kind of TVs that was on stilts, kind of like the Simpsons television with the antennas. Oh, like the rabbit ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and it was, had one of those kind of twisting dials to turn on. You'd twist it and it'd go, and it would power on like that. And I remember the moment, the second my brother's hand twisted the knob of the television and the TV shot on, my life changed forever. Because the first thing I saw was a pumpkin... And that iconic score. Didn't know what the movie was. Didn't know what the name of it was. All I was told was this is the scariest movie ever. It was, of course, Halloween. Now, here's the thing. Um, the room that I was in was, this, was be- this bedroom was from the 70s. Everything was wood paneled. Uh, everything was avocado green. You know what I mean? It was the most 70s room ever. And this was my first example of interactive cinema because I might as well have been sitting in Haddonfield watching this movie. I was like, you know what I mean? Like, and I didn't know who Michael Myers was. You know, he, 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 the image of Michael Myers has been watered down a little bit. I mean, I'm you a, mean due to all of the sequels and the reboots. Of course, like he's a, it's a ubiquitous image, you know, the, the William Shatner mask and this and this and, and that. And just like, the plain blue boiler suit. Yeah, exactly. Inspiration for Slipknot in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I, I had no knowledge of who this person was and the lack of knowledge of what he looked like, who he was, made it the most terrifying experience ever. It's kind of hard to watch Halloween these days and not be like, oh, that's your man. You know, and I suppose that's the case with most horror icons. I mean, Freddy Krueger started off as a sort of zombie child molester and then he was like doing hip hop songs. <laughs> you know what I mean? It literally was, yeah. Yeah. So, Pinhead like. Head and Hellraiser, of course, is like fucking killing a nightclub full of people by the third one, having been this kind of specter, you know, this mysterious hell lord in the first one. And and he went to space, he like all space. good horror yeah. icons. <clears throat> that's in the contract, yeah. If you want to be a horror villain, Michael Myers never went to space, but he did engage in a uh, hip-hop kung fu battle with Buster Rhymes. Remember he, that? He did indeed. And that's uh, one of the reasons why Psycho won't be showing up 
on my best soundtracks list is because whenever I hear the theme tune, I think Buster Rhymes. That's fair. <laughs> you know, so um, yeah, that that's that that was my kind of um, big moment of Your just gateway like into hell completely. Like, and it was just I drank the Kool Aid and. All I could think about was horror and just, I was both horrified and delighted in equal measure. And that's it, you know, I've I've been like the biggest horror fan, not the biggest, of course, but like... No, no, you said it. And I'm, I'm a, Own it. a huge supporter of the genre. I don't outwardly look like the world's biggest horror fan, which is why I like to call myself the Scarlet Goth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the secret goth, you know. By day, he looks like an innocent uh, writer of alternative songs, but by night, oh, he cavorts with the demons. Oh, he's firing up that Shudder account, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, Give me an uh, example of a recent horror film that, that has scared you, because obviously, you know, we get older, we've seen every horror film under the sun, some of them retain power, some of them don't, and, you know, you kind of, I think you know straight away. I went to see a new one there recently called It Lives Inside. I knew in the first five minutes it was going to suck. It wasn't of any effect on me whatsoever, and it would be bad. Yeah. But the ones that are going to be good, you kind of know there's a weight to it. So give me an example of a recent horror film in the last 10 years that kind of, you were like, that actually got me a little bit. Um, Speak No Evil. Yes. Um, the, which is getting a remake which won't be as good. With James McAvoy. Um, yeah, Speak No Evil. Um, I don't want to give the film away, um, but at one point my wife ran out of the room screaming. <laughs> yeah, so it's very unpleasant. Yeah. Scandinavian. It's, is it, is it, Danish, Dutch it's Danish kind of collaboration. Yeah, it's like, maybe. It, it's, but it's, 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 how do, how do I, do? I don't want to give it away. Just watch it, you know? And if you hate it, blame me, you know? It's, it's one of the most uncomfortable things you'll ever see. Yeah, it really is. It's a lot. That's a very good selection. Okay, listen, speaking of selections, uh, we're just going to jump straight into it, into our top fives. So as you know, you know, Paddy's got five selections. I've got five. And I don't know what he's picked. He doesn't know what I've picked. We'll queue them up accordingly we'll, and we'll see where the conversation goes. And of course, like I say, last time around, did this one before with Sarah Hedeman. Um, I picked previously ones I haven't picked this time. So uh, Yeah, I have I have the list here as well. So we can I'll, I can read out Zara's and you can read at yours. That's perfect, that? yeah, because you. this was your, like, you were very uh, stringent on this. This is Paddy's selection, by the way, the top five I that think, we're doing. I think if we're going to do this again, we have to not include the films from the previous list, but it's good to acknowledge the previous, because there's some excellent choices. And I think it's worth pointing out if I would have had any of these on my top five. Sure, sure. So I picked, last time around, I picked It Follows. Which is a very good choice. I think it's a great movie. I think the opening sequence is one of the, like a short film, a, a brilliant short film. I do think the film is let down in its final. I don't think we, the bit in the swimming pool got yeah. a bit sloppy. Friend of the show, Michael Pope, uh, has the exact same argument and the ending of the film infuriated him. Huh. Uh, Tarantino as well, I think, said the same thing. Uh, the Descent... Uh, which again, excellent choice, and we t we discussed this. I n really never thought of the Descent soundtrack um, because it's such a sort of suffocating kind of tense film that I suppose I just got so caught up in the in the claustrophobia that I didn't think of the soundtrack. But going back, you're absolutely correct. It is a great soundtrack. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Uh, Hellraiser, which is one of my all time favorite movies. But weirdly enough, I don't think of the soundtrack when I think of it. Interesting. I also picked Audition, a Japanese horror film, which is, if you've seen it, you'll know. Yep. <laughs> and my number one was, in fact, the original Halloween that freaked out Paddy so much. And as I have already explained, that could not have been my, it would have to have been my number one. Because if, if it weren't for that iconic score, we <clears throat> may not be sitting here right now. So that would have been my number one. Okay. Remind me, what did Zara pick? So uh, Zara chose Barbarian Sound Studio which is 
by broadcast, which is a great choice. I think it's it's you know it's 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 uh, the artful choice. I, I wouldn't have it wouldn't have been in my top five, but great choice. The Exorcist was number four. Now here's my thing about the Exorcist soundtrack. Do you love the Exorcist soundtrack or do you love Tubular Bells? Yeah, and like a uh, friend of the show and former guest Mark Conroy, I know that he went to see it recently, and judging by his letterbox, he said, "Is Tubular Bells a bit hokey?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And I was, can, I, can I make my confession now? Go on. Because yeah. I said this to somebody recently and they were very upset. I've seen, like, I've seen so many horror films. I love horror. I've never seen The Exorcist, guys. You've never like, seen it? seems it. impossible, right? But I, I want to just explain, right? I've, I've never seen the film from start to finish. I've seen bits of it. But I was, I was too freaked out by the imagery that I saw as a child. I just never got around to it. And I think I'm, you've said this when Zara picked it the last time. I think, I feel like I've heard this. Well, that's the truth. I've never yeah. seen it. Well, I do what? want to. I just haven't got around to it. That's fine. I think it's Thank like, you. it's kind of in the way of um, the, you know, the way you, I'm going to plug a Flop Culture, another podcast that Dave featured on this week and another podcast of which I work upon. Um, but you spoke about the Blair Witch and, the, all, and that effect that it had on you as well. So like, it's kind of same school of thought in the sense of like that kind of stuck with you whereas this one was like I'm not going near that because yeah, for the same reason probably also I know? should say yes you are correct there is a new episode of Flop Culture Fanula Jones' excellent podcast and it's all about the Blair Witch Project and more specifically it's terrible sequels I am the guest this week it was a very fun one to do and while I'm plugging podcasts that Adam is involved with there will be a new before the encore coming on this very feed very very soon yes yes but exactly back to Zara Hedeman's list the last time we did this yeah no worries uh, so her Third choice was Cannibal Holocaust um, by Riz Orzolani, which I may have had a role in uh, uh, her choosing that. Yeah, I, I, I proudly confess that I am the person who uh, recommended that soundtrack to Zara and she became a huge fan of it. And uh, I'm delighted she chose it because... If I were doing my top five, you'd know that I'd be done on, well, on the top Well, yeah, on Paddy's album, The Hill, there is a track on there that is very specifically indebted to that one. Yeah. Um, so I'm very glad that Zara was able to sort of jump on that grenade for me so that I wouldn't be Captain Repetitive over here. Yeah, but cannibalizing su- yourself, as it were. Hi-ho. Suffice to say, <laughs> Cannibal Holocaust soundtrack would have been in my top five, but not in this particular case. Her number two choice was... The soundtrack to Suspiria by the great Goblin. Magnificent. Great. Yeah. No, 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 uh, no, no, notes. Issue, no, no, no issues no. with that. No, uh, will Goblin be showing up again on these lists? Who knows? It's, there is a possibility. Yeah, 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 um, you never know. You'll know in about 10 seconds. <laughs> her, her, her number one choice was The Shining, <clears throat> which, yeah, yeah I, I don't love The Shining. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy opinion. Get out of the studio. <laughs> I don't hate The Shining. It just doesn't give me that warm, fuzzy feeling. And I think partly it's because Kubrick is more of a, a visitor to the horror genre. You know what I mean? A mood king. Yeah, like he wasn't going to make, you, you, you know, he wasn't going to make a, a fun, kooky horror flick. He was going to make a cold Kubrick thing. Also, there was somebody who pointed out recently, and I'd never thought of it before. Someone just said, Jack Nicholson isn't scary. <laughs> And if you think about it, it's Jack Nicholson. He's the guy who wears sunglasses at the Oscars and goes, hey. He goes to liquor games, yeah. I, I, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons, because all the sort of, you know, come play with us. All of the stuff with the house. But every time Jack Nicholson's on screen, it's like, it's, hey, it's Jack Nicholson. He's fun. It's the Joker. He likes to party and have a good time. But I do like The Shining. I just... I don't know. You, you, it just doesn't give me that warm, fuzzy feeling that I do get with so many horror films. Okay, well, look, I'm going to kick this list off, if you don't mind. You're more than I'm going to go to. first. Um, 
You mentioned them just a few seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> My number five. Uh, let's have it, shall we? my god, what a trip. What a trip. That is wild. That is absolutely wild. And that is, in fact, the Italian rock band Goblin. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, very familiar with the work of the, the master of giallo cinema, Dario Argento. You don't know what film this is, do you? The is opening it, credits. Is it Tenebrae? It is Tenebrae. There you go. Thank God. <laughs> so apparently uh, Goblin, who'd worked on Suspiria before in Deep Red, uh, they had disbanded before uh, I think this came out or something because like Argento moved on to a different composer for Inferno in 1980, which is another good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1982, Argento asked three of the band's four members, Claudio Simonetti, Fabio Pignolatelli, and Massimo Morante to work on Tenebra. Phenomenal Ten- pronunciation No, it's actually pretty terrible. Uh, Tenebrae, Tenebra, I'm not entirely sure, but um, that is I watched this film for the first time, I think it was this year. Uh, if, if anyone listening is not familiar with the work of Dario Argento, Paddy Hanna, how would you how would you tee him up? He is a gaunt-looking chap. Um, he is the purveyor of the world's greatest um, horror movie sh- store, Profundo Rosso, in Via de Gracchi in Rome. Uh, he is a peculiar chap who popularised the stalking camera shot of a gloved-handed person uh, stabbing people with knives. Um, He's one of the most influential horror directors ever. Some make the case that 80s horror wouldn't exist had he not made Suspiria. The kind of colour palette of that film is huge influence on kind of 80s horror, the kind of neon tinge. Um, He is a very he's 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 controversial in the eyes of some people um, because he kills a lot of women in his films that's like, yeah yeah beautiful he, he, women he's, get murdered he cer- he certainly does get uh, get a bit of stick for that but um i mean he's he on the mount rushmore of horror directors you could most certainly make a case for him being on it and like you know the films are always dubbed kind of terribly as well but that's kind of part of the charm well italian movies are always shot without sound yeah it's the policy in Italy. They shoot without sound and they dub it. And a lot of that has to do with they are multilingual casts. They'll have people from Germany. They'll have people from America, America Italy, yeah. of course. And they'll all just speak their native tongue and they'll, they'll just dub it afterwards. And I've seen so many Italian horror films and we will be discussing Italian horror a little bit uh, in a moment. But... Um, there's like the same four voice actors and like there's the guy who sort of sounds like that. Ah, doctor, it's you. Yes. Well, looks like we've got a Mexican standoff. He said of the Adam Wesson. Then there's the kind of gruff guy. 
who sounds like this. And then there's the woman who sort of sounds like this. But the, what is it, the transatlantic accent? Isn't that the, the one where it's you can never tell if it's American or British? Yeah. yeah. The, 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 there are like the same. I mean, I hope they got paid well for their work. Because I saw I saw opera last year as part of the IFI Horathon. Yeah. And I'd never seen it before. And it's incredible. Um, and so over the top and silly in the way that his movies are. The and of course, ending to that movie is, the like, ending is like, like mental. It's like the sound of music with blood and helicopters. It's fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> also, it has a perfectly good ending, and they were like, "Let's have another one." But yeah. also, like, there's a there's a young American actor in it who is one of the first to go, and it's one of the most violent, horrific murders you'll ever see. It's the boyfriend. Yeah. And again, I've seen that guy in other stuff. I think William McNamara is his name. Not a very big actor, but he's popped up and stuff here and there. And so, in this film, even though he's an American actor, he's got the "What's wrong, honey? This yeah. is not my voice at all." And it's just that weird thing. And of course, whenever the killer strikes in that movie with his black gloved hand. It just cracks into the most insane, like, speed metal out of nowhere for, like, for the kills. And with this as well, I, just, I should say as well, sorry, Suspiria you got to mention there. So real quick, Adam, do you want to hear the tagline for Suspiria? I would love to. Hear, I would love nothing more. 1977 Suspiria. Quote, the only thing more terrifying than the last 12 minutes of this film are the first 92. <laughs> Oh my God. Why so specific? What an absolutely amazing cosign from themselves. It's an incredible film. Uh, Tenebra, which is what we're talking about here, that's the opening theme. You see a begloved hand like burning pages in a fire and this plays over it and I could not get over. And, and I, can't, I can't not mention great friend of the show and no popcorn co-host Dave Higgins who is obsessed with this track and rightly so. Um, this is about an American author who's in Rome promoting his latest murder mystery and he becomes embroiled in the search for a serial killer who may have been inspired to kill by his novel. It pulls an audacious trick halfway through the movie, which I won't spoil. Um, and generally, it's... Dave, the film is 40 years old. It's more than 40 years old, is it? Was it 82? I 41 mean, years old. I suppose it, because there's kind of a mystery element to it, you don't want to give it I away. I don't want to give it away. That's I, fair. I, 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 that's I'd, fair I'd actually never seen it until very, until relatively recently. And I was like, okay, wow, that's an interesting move to pull in this movie. But there's also lots of comical gore. And, you know, he just has this, this incredible Argento way about him that he can actually put a track like this in your movie and have the movie still be kind of, you know, respectful and also completely insane over the top. But also, when I sent you this track, I sent it to you yesterday, Adam, and I was like, yeah. I have to send this to you now. You have to hear this because... You know, I don't think it's quite disco, but it's not far off, is it? It's like very, it's like Italo disco. Yes, uh, very, like very adjacent to that, with like a lot of Lydian, um, a lot of like Lydian scale stuff happening there, Dorian scale stuff that like makes it have that kind of spooky feel to it. Um, but what I love about like there's so many, th it's like very nostalgic. But I'm not familiar with this film at all. I'm not very. I'll say at the top, I'm not very au fait in terms of the horror genre at all we're going to change that um, tonight which is like but, but it's great because I get to learn about stuff I have like no idea about particularly in terms of like music that soundtrack these these films and as but, you as you also said if it slaps it slaps it you know? really like it's just completely relentless yeah that's yeah. the only really you need here alright let's have your number five okay so listen I was thinking about what, what, what order am I going to do this right and I thought okay let's let's just start you know, because, you know, I've got some fun choices. I've got some, uh, you know, some some choices that, you know, you'd want to put in and have a little walk around town listening to. But we're going to start things out with straight up, simple, shivers down your spine. Second you hear it, you're going to be scared music. OK, hit it, Adam. Thank you. 
yes. As I as I say, that is just straight up scary. I mean, I, I can't hear that without instantly being uncomfortable. So what you're listening to right now is the opening uh, music from the 1989 TV version of The Woman in Black. Oh, wow. For, okay. Now, this was a movie. It was based on the 1983 novel by Susan Hill, which is a phenomenal book, by the way. And a lot of people think The Woman in Black is this kind of book from like the early 20th century. No, it was written in the 80s. It, was, it came out around the same time Tenenbrae did. Um, and it's, um, it's a great book. Um, but if I had to choose between the book or the 1989 TV version, I'm 1989 TV version all the way. Um, look, in my opinion, it's one of the scariest movies ever made. And for me, aside from the soundtrack by Rachel Portman, by the way, I should point out, it is perhaps the perfect example of the economy of horror, okay? So, you know, you'll watch a horror movie and there's sort of CGI and there's this and there's that. Like, you don't need any of that. All you need is a woman in a black dress standing in the distance and that's it. That's all it takes to scare the bejesus out of you. I don't recall when I first saw this movie. I was quite young. It wasn't when it first aired, but I, I remember seeing parts of it and I was just hiding behind a pillow and and it, it is legitimately one of the scariest things I've ever seen and by the way Guillermo del Toro agrees with me okay and he knows a thing or two Dave have you seen this film? No I actually haven't and I haven't seen the Daniel Radcliffe remake of recent years either Yeah which was a, a Hammer Horrors production Yes Yeah yeah they bought back Hammer Horrors and they remade Let the Right One In and then did The Woman in Black I watched sorry not to cut you off but I watched the remake of Let the Right One In there recently uh, yeah. having avoided it completely for 10 years because I was like, no one needs this. And I watched it about a week ago. I thought it was very, very good. Have you seen The Batman yet? Yeah, Matt Reeves, same director. Yeah, and yeah. like, do you notice a lot of similarities between the films? I did now, of course, yeah. yeah. I, I, I thought the Let the Right One In remake was genuinely almost as good as the first one. I was shocked. Uh, I actually, I saw the remake first. Okay. And then I saw the, the, the original uh, after. Um I, I mean, I, I like them both. I actually did have, truth, truly, in my shortlist, I had Let Me In as one of my scores, uh, uh, possible scores for this one, because I thought the score was really fucking good. Mm, well, there you go. Well, so if you haven't seen the thing, well, I'll tell you this. It's This is the Woman Black TV yeah, version. Yeah, correct. It, it, so it aired on Christmas Eve, actually. So it was kind of an Emor James-like whistle and I'll come to you, me lad, kind of thing. And it, it showed... I think maybe one or two times after that and it kind of fell into obscurity and it's only kind of been reassessed recently as this kind of proper scare the pants off you um, movie and it's just it's beautiful in its setting like you know if there's one thing that British horror does perhaps better than anyone it's a sense of place sense of atmosphere you think of the the Hammer horror movies of the 50s and 60s, you know, they'd always shoot them in like real castles, real graveyards. So you have that sense of place and atmosphere that there is real, almost a kind of evil on screen. And um, if, you know, if I can um, sell you on it more, it was written by Nigel Neal. Nigel Neal, who wrote Quatermass in the Pit, uh, The Stone Tapes, and of course, Halloween 3. Oh, yes. Season of the Witch. Ni- yes, exactly. Nigel Neal's he also he wrote a lot of Doctor Who episodes. Um, so he was he's um, he's one of the great kind of British horror kind of TV and film writers. Um, it is available to watch on YouTube, but if you can uh, try and purchase yourself, a copy it's a nice it. probably a nice two forty p upload there. Is yeah. It? So look, um, since you haven't seen it, I guess we can't go into the weeds on it too much. But I will say this: um, 
the League of... This is a, I, I got this from an article from the, the Guardian, because I am well-read, apparently. Uh, the League of Gentlemen creators are vocal fans. Reese Shearsmith calls it the most terrifying programme I have ever seen. And as I mentioned, Oscar winner uh, Guillermo del Toro cites it as one of his favourite supernatural films. So, ladies and gentlemen, don't listen to me. Listen to these two stalwarts of the genre. Um, the soundtrack, by the way, which... Is it's just so it owes a bit to Psycho in parts. It has you know the old stabbing violins or whatever. But watch it. It's just it's a beautifully crafted, simple film, and it will sit with you. My oftentimes my favorite kind of horror movies are the ones that just seep into you slowly, and it it's it's a perfect example of that. The soundtrack, which I mentioned, was nominated for a BAFTA, and it lost to Poirot. (laughs) 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 But. If we can circle it back to horror, who starred as Poirot in this? David Suchet. David Suchet narrates all of the M. or Jane books on Audible. So there you go. It always comes back to horror in the end. And by the way, if you do want a lovely listen, listen to David Suchet uh, narrating Whistle and I'll Come to You, my lad, um, on Audible. So there you go. The soundtrack to The Woman in Black is my number five choice. Uh, real quick on the subject of British televisual horror, there's something I've never seen, but everyone keeps talking about it to this day. <laughs> BBC's Ghost Watch. Did you ever watch that? When uh, they, well, It was Michael Parkinson and two other hosts, and they had some like hour and a half long special about, we're going to try and find a ghost. And apparently it genuinely freaked people out. Yeah, it was a War of the Worlds type situation because apparently what happened was there was a previous TV show that was on, there was a TV show on a different channel that was a hugely popular show. And it ran over because it was like a live like news thing or something like that. So millions of people who tuned in to see Ghostwatch missed the part where they said, and now we present a dramatised version starring Michael Parkinson and, and uh, your man from Red Dwarf. And um, so they missed that and just came in and saw Sarah Green. And, uh, and they were all legitimate TV hosts and Red Dwarf stars. And... The acting is really convincing in it. Like, Parkinson is, is Parkinson. Like, if you've ever seen Gordon Ramsay try to act, you're like, that is Gordon Ramsay acting. But Michael Parkinson is pretty flawless. Sarah Green is pretty flawless. Uh, Craig Charles is his sort of usual, sort of cheeky, chappy self. And it really does suck you in. I, I'm i a huge Ghostwatch fan. You probably guessed that from my I'm little... Definitely gonna, I'm definitely going to fire it up. I'm sure it's on YouTube. All right, my number four. Uh, let's go for something... Um, a, a man who is regarded as something of a abstract, high-concept, yet minimalistic king. And these are the opening credits to a film that I think deserves a bit more love.
The year is 1992, and the spectre of death haunts a housing project by the name of Cabrini Green. And who is the spectre in question? It is, of course, The Candyman. It is Candyman, 1992, directed by Bernard Rose, uh, based on a short story by what author? Clive Barker. Clive Barker, who set the original, of course, the man responsible for Hellraiser and many other things, who set it in Liverpool. Um, it was all about the British working class system, but it was transposed to Chicago and instead focused on the themes of race and social class. The stars Virginia Madsen and, of course, the incredible Tony Todd, who embodies the titular Candyman. This is an incredible film. It was remade recently. I didn't think the remake was all that great. The original is has so much more... Substance and terror to it, and a lot of it is Philip Glass, the music of Philip Glass, which we just heard there, and this incredible score. What do you, what do you think of this? Uh, it's a great choice, and it's one that I properly thought of. And the reason I didn't choose it was because I just—it's not something that have popped on the earbuds and I'd listen to. But I—it's—it is when I think of that movie, I think of the soundtrack, and Tony Todd is phenomenal. Um, what I love about his performance is that it's like clearly dubbed in, but in a way that's kind of ethereal and scary yet alluring. He's like a modern day Dracula. Yeah, his voice is incredible. Yeah, it gets a bit of treatment for sure. But that scene where he like confronts her for the first time in the car park. Yeah. It's everything about it, the music, the way it's shot and just him being like... Be my victim. Yeah, exactly. Be my victim. Be my victim. Incredible. Uh, it's it's amazing. It's hell of a movie. I I think I need to revisit it. Um, it's you know it's not a perfect horror, but it's pretty strong. Um, a lot of very very kind of terrifying imagery in it, and it's one of those ones as well where when I was a youngster and my brother would have like you know it rented out from the video shop or something, and I would see like a horrific piece of imagery and just be traumatized for days afterwards. I was scared to watch this one for years as well. Mm-hmm. There's so much atmosphere, and I think Philip Glass's score goes a long way. But don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. Here's a Variety interview from 2014 in which he was asked, uh, how important are the film scores considering your entire career? He said, I've done probably 40 films, a couple of them pretty good, but for professional standards, that's not considered much. In Hollywood, I'm still considered an amateur film composer, but I began very late in my 40s. I then had a lot of experience from theatre, opera and dance, so a lot of the technique was very well known to me. It was more a question of accommodating to how the industry worked. Then he is asked, what is your relation to the film industry. He says, Philip Glass says, it would be a great mistake to underestimate the amount of talent that goes into filmmaking. Like opera, it combines text and images, all the elements, earth, water, air and fire are there, and it's a marvellous place to work. In terms of entertainment films, they follow the trends of popular music. I think that's mostly good. But I'm also doing experimental films, and we have a lot of freedom in those. And of course, I've done some commercial films like The Errors and The Truman Show. I worked with those directors once, but they usually don't want to work with me again. Even though they like the novelty to work with a composer who works that way, it doesn't really fit into the way the industry works. However, I've done quite a few of those films too. Once I even did a slasher movie called Candyman. Uh It has become a classic, so I still make money from that score. I get checks every year. Is that, are those shots fired at <laughs> Candyman there? Um, I'd, I'd like to jump in just for a second, just on the like the way he's like, oh, well, this is how the industry works and this is how it doesn't work kind of thing. And like he's very much using, it's it's so interesting from like approaching it from an orchestral perspective. And, uh, and it's like kind of the songwriter slash producer in me that's being, you know, that's the, the little light bulb is coming on there because it's what he's doing is essentially is trying to, obviously this is the most generic thing I've ever said in my life, but he's like trying to embody the genre via the music he's doing. Of course, that's exactly what a score is, but I think it's like so, 
abundantly clear in what he's doing there. Like even that for the chord and the fourth measure is it's like so purpose purposely dissonant, and it's like very clear that that's there to make you feel uncomfortable. As is the imagery in the film. Do you know what I mean? It's like a very much a mirror mirror effect there. I think, and it, so far, and from obviously the previous one as well, I think it's the most obvious example of that that I've seen to, to like mirror audio and visual kind of grimace I guess Adam keeps saying the word mirror and we know what we must not do when we stand in front of a mirror when it comes to Candyman right you don't want to say, say his name don't say his name <laughs> how many is it five times I think it's five times yeah yeah have, uh, have we seen the remake starring yeah. uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen I, second? Uh, I didn't I didn't really love it I had a few kind of really cool stylistic moments it uh, did and I'll tell you what took me out of the movie okay so it's sort of it's told from a different perspective and it involves a gentleman who was wrongly killed by the police who was known as the Candyman. And they state in the movie that he was killed. He was just an innocent man who was just, you know, minding his own business. But here's the problem. In the movie, they show this guy. He lives in a wall, has a hook for a hand and goes up to children with a creepy smile on his face offering them candy. They show this scene where he comes out of the wall and walks almost like the creature from the end of wreck and holds the candy and then goes back into the wall. And then, and then, you know, they say, oh, he was, he was killed. He was just an innocent man. It's like, he was pretty creepy, to be fair. Do you know what it's I mean? not quite on the same level as the original Candyman. In which, yeah, which is a love story. And, and he's it, murdered by racists on yeah. the plantation. I just think that if they were going to portray this gentleman in a manner that, like, yeah, of course he offers candy to a child, but he also has a hook for a hand. Yeah. And well, I, it's confused, because I think the, the, the new Candyman is confused. I, I think it's trying to do an awful lot of modern-day, obviously, racial elements, which, of course, fits in perfectly with the previous. I think it's just muddled, and, you know, it looks very nice. It has some nice score in it as well. Um, I, I The performances are mostly good. It just left me really kind of cold, and it makes some really fucking stupid modern-day horror movie decisions, like, here's the snooty critic! goes yeah. and she's a bit racist don't worry guys she's gonna get it it's like it doesn't have the weight that this thing had um it it, it also does it, it sort of veers into sort of fun little comedy moments which take me out of the, i think the there is a scene where someone is is killed and and they're kind of like Whoa! almost like tripping on banana peels um you know for me comedy and horror can often have an uncomfortable kind of relationship i mean for instance uh, I like Jordan Peele. I, I really liked Nope, the most recent one. I really liked Get Out. The second one, Us, I thought again had some great stylistic moments. I thought Lupita Nyong'o was phenomenal in it. The way she distorted herself and had yeah, that she's magnificent. Voice. Yeah, but there's Don't too the much movie, levity in the film. There is. There is a scene. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> there is a scene where they have a kind of fun comedy yeah. dialogue whilst the corpses of their best friends are just lying all around them. And and the gag of, like, you know, the Alexa gag, I fucking hate it. Mm-hmm. Call the police. Oh, no, they're playing NWA. But Hilarious. It's, but it's just like, you know, these are innocent, everyday people who have witnessed murder, have committed murder themselves, and are standing around the corpses of some of their best friends, and they're all just like, waka waka, having fun conversations. So for that... 
Jordan Peele got a bit too key and Peele he also, for his own good. Well, Jordan Peele produced uh, the the new Candyman. It was directed by Nia DaCosta. And, you know, there's enough visual fire there for me to want to see what she does next. But um, although, did she get swallowed up by Marvel, possibly? Anyway, she's doing the Marvels, yeah. Yeah, and she's, she's actually been very, very... She hasn't come out yet, and she's been very vocal. She's given interviews where she basically said it was a miserable experience. And fair play to her. Good honour. We need more of that. Take the money, get out, make something different. As for Jordan Peele, slide and scale. Get out's great, us isn't great, and nope sucks. What's your number four? Okay. So you know the way I started off with really, really scary? What we need to do now is we need a bit, we need to, we need a, we need a break, but we don't need any kind of break. Well, I'll tell you what we need. Hit it, Adam. have a good time. We're going on now. A ball break, walking hand in hand in the moonlight. We'll be the sweet soul there. I swear we'll never part. We're going on now. That is the irresistible earworm Fall Break, performed by Peter Yellen from the 1984 slashic The Mutilator. Oh, yes. Have you seen The Mutilator? Did you just coin the term slashic? Uh, I possibly, I'm sure someone else. A classic slasher. I like that. That's good. No, I have not seen The Mutilator. It's phenomenal. It is one of my favorite slasher movies. I often think that I'm not a slasher fan. But then if I were to weigh on each hand how many slashers I like, how many I don't like, I think it might actually skew more towards like. Um, So for context, um, I've seen this movie several times and I love it. And I always wondered why I loved it. I think a large reason has to do with this song, Fall Break, that you listen to there. It plays about 20 times in the movie (laughs) because they didn't really have much of a budget. So they're just like, just keep using Fall Break. And it's like the most out of place song imaginable, but it just keeps showing up. It's one of the few horror movies I've ever seen that ends with a gag reel. You know, like the end of Anchorman or Smokey and the Bandit. Where, and every time I watched it, like you watch, some, sometimes you watch a slasher movie or a horror movie in general, and you get that kind of icky feeling at the end. You think, oh, that was uncomfortable. I didn't really like that. But when you watch The Mutilator, I always, I, I would always end and just be like, you know what? I feel good. I feel like that was fun. I feel happy. I'm ready to seize yeah. the day. I, I know exactly. I've got pep on my step. There was something weirdly charming about it. And it was actually in researching for this show that I got to the bottom of what makes it such a charming experience. The, the film called The Mutilator. So basically, this was directed by a fellow called Buddy Cooper, who was a, um, he was a lawyer from North Carolina, right? And he wasn't enjoying being a lawyer. And he wanted to go to film school. And he looked at the cost of film school, four years, um, and he looked at how much it would cost and said, you know, why don't I just take the cost of the uh, film school and just make a movie? And that's what he did. He made The Mutilator. And he cast all of his mates and just, you know, some local folks from around the area. He shot it in this lovely seaside town. And yeah, it's basically just... A, you know, a, a guy who's so full of pith and vinegar just making a movie with his mates. And like, <clears throat> he, there, there was a person in the beginning of the film, the film opens, and this isn't too much of a spoiler, but, but the film opens with a boy accidentally killing his mother, right? So the actor playing the mother didn't show up. So Buddy Cooper got his wife to play the mother. <laughs> and the person who shoots, the boy who shoots his mother was was their son. <laughs> so like, it's a family affair. The movie opens with the brutal accidental killing of, of uh, this boy's mother. But you just know 
that you can feel the director off camera saying, and cut, that was great, you know, yay! Let's all go out for ice cream. <laughs> I mean, the acting is terrible. The directing is stodgy at best. But, I, I, you know, I, with my hand on my heart, if you watch The Mutilator, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's just... It's so innocent, okay? Well, basically, the story of the film is um, classic, cliched slasher stuff, right? A bunch of mates, college age, go off to a location for fun and frolics, whereupon they're sort of picked off one by one by uh, a masked assailant. The only difference is, in this case, we know who the killer is immediately. It's the dad of the boy who was killed. Uh, that's not a spoiler. It's it's obvious from the go that that's who the killer is, right? That's the only difference. And, like, these pe- these people, they're just so sort of... They're just kind of innocent, these people. Like, they all have sweaters knotted about their shoulder. At one point during their fun and frolics, they play blind man's buff. <laughs> you know, they turn off the dark and just try to go find each other. And there's no, like, there's nothing, there's nothing naughty. They're just sort of fun and innocent. Um, and in the midst of all this kind of stuff, there are some very good kills. Um, the makeup was done by a fellow called Mark Schustrom, who would go on to do makeup for Evil Dead 2. Nightmare on Elm Street 3, From Beyond. Have you seen From Beyond? Well, it's got good makeup in it. <laughs> it's the, <laughs> the Stuart Gordon movie. It was made after Reanimator. I've Reanimator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you didn't do makeup on that. Okay. But anyway. Well, whoever did the makeup on that one did a good job. So in the midst of all this kind of innocentness, it, uh, it, there are these very, very violent kills. But as I mentioned, like the movie ends on a blooper reel and you just feel good. So it's totally askew. I will seek this out. Yeah, it, it is. It, like, don't get me wrong. I'm. You're not going to see high art here. You're going to see a very stodgily directed, poorly acted film that moves at what what many would argue is a snail's pace. That's fair. But you just love it. You're kind of willing on the people on the screen. Like, you can do it, you know? It's like watching somebody who you really like do an open mic night for the first time. And you're like, you know, they're not brilliant, but you're like, yeah, you know what? I'm in a pub with my mates. Yeah. Yeah, I'm having a few beers. This is good. Even though John or whoever is not brilliant. He's bombing. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? I feel good. It's got hard. (laughs) Okay. For my number three, um, slightly, I mean, like like, this director definitely likes some glacial pace and is uh, certainly very, very divisive. Doesn't always get rooted for. So let's, uh, yeah, let's talk about a, 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 a polarizing figure in the world of cinema. Here's my number three. I was just going to say, I, I'm not sure what this song is. Well, you did ask, was it Trent Reznor? The answer is no, but it's certainly <laughs> someone who's looking to kind of ape his style. It's Cliff Martinez, who's done lots of stuff, including Contagion and Drive, and here he is collaborating again with that director, Nicholas Winding Refn, on The Neon Demon. Oh, okay. A film that I feel like people either haven't seen or didn't like, but I loved it. I also loved it. 
Did you? I'm yeah. glad and, to hear. 2016 I, psychological horror about the fashion industry. I saw it in the IFI, the Irish Film Institute, for those of you listening abroad. And uh, after I saw it, I went to the boys' room and had a little wee-wee and the guy next to me having a wee-wee was Furious about the film? Yeah, he was like, "That was the worst piece of shit I've ever sold." <laughs> and I was like, "I liked it." <laughs> I, I mean, I think if you, even if you love the movie, you can get why people don't like. Oh, it. Of course, I see. Like, I like him more than I don't. I think only God forgives is five stars. I, I really enjoyed the TV show that he made for Amazon that nobody watched. Uh, Too old to die young, but I mean, it is him very much taking the piss in terms of just these ornate, beautiful. Uh, long shots of red lit corridors that don't really mean anything. Yeah. Um, but I, I quite like him. I quite like his work more than I don't. Um, and this is a film in which Ella Fanning plays a young model who goes to Los Angeles to be big and the industry ends up devouring her. And so it's, I love the score. The score is by Cliff Martinez, as I noted. Um, he was asked for a sparse electronic score. Cliff Martinez said that the first half of the film resembles a melodrama like Valley of the Dolls and the second half is like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. According to Raffin and Martinez, the soundtrack was influenced by Giorgio Moroder, Goblin, Kraftwerk, Vangelis, and Tangerine Dream. And of course, Trent Reznor, probably. Um, uh, there's some original stuff, like Sia did a song called Waving Goodbye, which ends the movie. I think it's great. And actually, the actress Bridget Nielsen has a son called Julian Winding, uh, who contributed two tracks, The Demon Dance and Mine, uh, which were performed by his band Sweet Tempest, all of which I quite like. Annoyingly, the soundtrack has disappeared from Spotify in recent times. Not sure why. Um, I mentioned Only God Forgives. Ryan Gosling, the follow-up to Drive. I think it's much better than Drive. 90 minutes, not much happens, not much dialogue. People hate it. I love it. Do you know who else loves it? Go on. Nicholas Winding Refn, who made it. And here is an astonishing clip. Um, This is Nicholas Winding Refn having an interview-based conversation with the late, great William Friedkin, in which uh, Refn makes some boisterous claims and William Friedkin who if you're not aware of William Friedkin's interview style let's just say he had no filter um, he will respond to what he hears in this one here's a great clip I'm like you I have no regrets about Only God Forgives I think it's a masterpiece and it is I just didn't make it very expensive is there a doctor in the house we we need to get a medic in here is there is there a doctor around (laughs) I just didn't make you, it. If you I, think I, that's a masterpiece, what is Citizen Kane? It's great, but it's very. In, it was an inexpensive movie, so financially. Who gives a shit? And I have just two questions left. When you were mentioning, I have a third. Where is there a medic for this man? When you were mentioning, did you hear the ambulance pull up? Okay. When you were mentioning 2001, Citizen Kane, you forgot to add Drive. But we'll let that slip. We won't know about Drive for another 30 years. 30 seconds. Wh- whether it lives or dies. I'm talking about films. Uh, 2001 was made in 1968. I made this film about four years ago. So it's about Four time. years is a zip. It's not even a blip. It's not a, a pimple on, on the asshole of humanity. Four years. But 2001 was made in 1968 and holds up like gangbusters better than all this other similar crap and Citizen Kane my know Citizen Kane was made in 1941 we know that my point and is, it lives I like I wa- I wish I had an ounce of the confidence that those two either of those two men have <laughs> because that is that is a real clash of the titans there isn't it 
They're both it's, very steadfast. Yeah, like, you know, no one's backing yeah, down. The, immovable, <laughs> the unstoppable force and the immovable object. Yeah. I, yeah. I love William Friedkin. Have you watched his documentary about the exorcist where it's just him talking well because i haven't seen the film <laughs> oh correct but it's it's i think it's well i forget what it's uh, it's it's on shutter anyways but it's just him talking about film and uh you know he, as i say he could read the phone book as they say but um god that's quite the quite the argument there huh yeah i mean it's pretty incredible and uh i love the neon demon i've seen the neon demon probably like three or four maybe even five times i haven't seen the exorcist i will fix that problem very soon so was that William Friedkin I was pissing next to in the IFI, I wonder. <laughs> Maybe it was. Sounds like it might have been, yeah. Uh, the biggest piece of shit I've ever sold. Let's have, let's have your next one. Okay, listen. Um, we're just going to go straight in here, Adam, and we're going to listen to some music. I think that's the first like ever horror score soundtrack thing I've heard that is in a major key. Well, there you go. Huh? Sounds like Neil Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It is uh, <clears throat> um, a rather lovely piano ballad from the 1987 German film Necromantic. That's right, folks. The song is called Menage à Trois from the movie necromantic so you can probably figure out what happens whilst that song plays uh, long story short necromantic is a is the charming story of a young couple who have a bit of a thing for banging corpses uh, so they have a thruple with a particularly decomposed corpse who the boyfriend happens across because he works as a sort of corpse disposal expert and he likes to pinch bits here and there um, so why does somebody make a movie about thruples uh, involving corpses. Well, I'll tell you why. The director of this movie is a fellow called Jörg Butgarit. I looked up the pronunciation. I didn't want to fluff it. And so basically, he was kind of a young punk rock guy in the 80s. And there were really strict censorship laws in Germany in the 1980s, which seems kind of ridiculous because the people making these laws, some of them would have been you know, former Nazis, former Hitler youth. So the idea in the eyes of many young Germans, was like, you can't be telling us what to censor. You know, some of you used to be bloody Nazis. How dare you try to censor? It's so, a fair argument. Yeah, I think so. So Jörg Butgreit, in, a, in his... better. Thank you very much. In his fury, decided to make a film that was so shocking, it would piss off the German government. And that's what he did. He made Necromantic. So... Before you say, Patrick, you perverted sadist, why would you choose a movie about banging corpses? No, man, this is a, this is a punk rock movie, okay? It was made to piss off the German government in the 80s. Um, it was made on a total shoestring, and the soundtrack reflects that, right? The guy who performed that piece is called, he was called John Boy Walton. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Because, of course, you know, if you, if you had to guess who did that, it was John Boy Walton. And I love the soundtrack to the movie. Okay, it sounds like it was recorded by a nutter in a basement on a four track. It sounds like the kind of mu- music that, you know, someone would give to me on a CD when we'd be on tour, 
in Europe a few years ago. You know, I recorded this music. Perhaps you'd like to listen to it. I made it in my basement. <laughs> uh, and it, it just it has that icky feel and it really sits beautifully with the film. But here's the thing. If you watch a lot of... Uh, the, obviously, the movie was made in protest. It is a work of kind of anarchic protest. But perhaps the most brilliant work of anarchy in the movie Necromantic is that it's surprisingly tender. Right? I mean, it is called necromantic. Of course, you know, so the emphasis on the mantic part. Never mind that. And you necrom- keep saying banging corpses, but I know that you're going to say that there's actually, it's more like making love, right? It's a, it's a movie about relationships. And I was I watched it with my wife. Hello, Jilly. How's, uh, that, how's that relationship going? We're hanging in there. <laughs> 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 Much like the decaying corpse in the throuple. Um, but we were watching it and we were just like, I think at one point I said, looked over at her or she looked over at me, one or the other, and I was like, this is, this is kind of sad. This is kind of a tender sort of story about relationships and this kind of thing. And the reason I think it's the, a great act of kind of, of, of anarchicness is that people seek this movie out, okay? They're always like, oh yeah, man, I'm a gore hound. I'm into extreme cinema. I'm going to watch Necromantic and it's going to be crazy. And then they're crying by the end of yeah, it. Yeah, and then they're like, God damn it, Necromantic. You know, so it is surprisingly tender and and also it's it's one of these kind of shoestring budget movies that um you know they 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 never had the budget to kind of shoot on location so they just set up a camera somewhere film and i love those kind of movies movies like basket case you know the frank hennen lotter movie or habit the larry fessenden movie from the 90s these kind of movies where they just capture a sense of place and sort of um so there, it also has a real kind of sense of place, the movie, as sort of the couples would wander around Berlin, sort of looking forlorn and all this kind of stuff. So watch Necromantic. Prepare to be shocked. Don't get me wrong. It's extremely low budget as well. I mean, it's like proper low budget. You know what I mean? Um, so, um, yeah, you, you'll be surprised by what you see. And as I say, the soundtrack is a work of demented lo-fi brilliance. Yeah, before we move off this kind of part of the world, I just want to note that uh, in films that you know are clearly designed to challenge in this regard, I watched an Austrian film called Angst the other day. I don't think I've seen anything more unpleasant in my entire life. (laughs) It is so, so, so distressing. (laughs) Four out of five, I'll never watch it again as long as I live. For those of you who aren't in the studio right now, the physical reaction I just saw from Dave. (laughs) I think crestfallen is the word for it. Yeah, I felt like all of the enthusiasm left your body for a moment. 84 minutes long or less, and I just, by the end of it, I I felt like I I couldn't breathe. I, I, I felt my stomach turned. I understand why it was made. It feels like itself an act of protest. But Jesus Christ. Just be careful if you're ever going to watch that movie. All right. Uh, something else for, for my number two. People will say this isn't a horror film, but it is. And the music is a big part of it. Here it is. is the work of Howard Shore. It's from a thriller from the mid-90s. Want to guess? 
A thriller that is deeply horrible. It's Deep. seven? It's seven. All right. It is, in fact, seven. Uh, Herod Shore, of course, who did the score for the Sons of the Lambs, did this, and would later go on to the Lord of the Rings films, because, of course, that's the natural What a graduation. Yeah. yeah. It sure is. Uh, seven, or as a horror movie podcast I like to listen to called How to Survive. They did it recently, and they called it Sevenin, because you have S E seven E N. They also reviewed 13 Ghosts, which has a sound. They were like 13 and Ghosts, which is pretty good. It's a good podcast. Anyway, this is also a good podcast. Let's continue it. Uh, seven, yeah. I mean, I've seen this film a lot of times. I find it endlessly watchable and rewatchable, but also just so deeply sad and deeply unpleasant and deeply effective and terrifying. And it has so much weight and substance to it. And of course, you know, if you've never seen the movie, somehow, you know, it's about a serial killer who kills people via the method of the seven deadly sins. You only ever see the aftermath of these killings. You don't see the killings themselves. And yet you will feel like you have witnessed the greatest, most horrible trauma ever. Everything in this film sticks to you. It is so oppressive from the constant rain to the way that Fincher and his uh, cinematographer shoot everything. Everything is cramped and confined and like hopeless and just constantly dark. And there's just, it's just so, it's like a vice grip being tightened upon you. And Howard Shore's score and the kind of little cut bit, like this is from the moment in the film where they find the apartment of the killer and they go inside and it's just... From start to finish, I find that every part of the atmosphere, everything in the film is designed to just repulse you and make you feel terrified, and it works every single time. But I also find this extremely watchable. I'm just curious to, who thinks it's not a horror movie? (laughs) It's always kind of sold as like a thriller. I think it kind of walks the line perfectly between the two. Like, I think... If you say, if if you're in the school of thought of it's a thriller, you're right. If you're in the school of thought that it's a horror film, you're also right. If you, it's on Amazon Prime at the moment. So if you go on there, if you have that, like I watched it there recently, if you go onto that and watch the trailer, and like the trailer is the trailer, it's made by a marketing company, you got to sell the movie. But the trailer makes it look a lot more like, you know, two cops going to take down, like, like it's, it's kind of like high octane. And, you know, it's not completely betraying of what the, what the film is, but the film is just so much more insidious and, a slow burn that just makes you sick. Like, you know, like a really dull, like by the end of that film, you're left with just a horrible feeling about everything. Mm. And yet I find myself watching it once every couple of years. And anytime someone asks what's in a box, you have to go, what's, what's in, in the, the box? box? What's in the box? <laughs> I think he gets, I think Brad Pitt gets too much stick for that. I think it's actually a very good performance. Oh, yeah, no, How it's would phenomenal. you react to be like, well, you know, he Spoilers, knows there's something yeah. bad in that box. How would you react? It's a very human response. Morgan Freeman, I remember like on the commentary, Morgan Freeman talks about like the bit where he opens the box and he has yeah. to react to it. And he was saying in the commentary, he was like, how do you react to this? Like what you just mm-hmm. said there, he was like, he's like, I just tried to do what I thought somebody might do. Would you rather Charlton Hessen do it? What's in the box? You know, I love that like um, Jack Palance to do it. You know, I do love that bit though when he like he he like is opening the box and he's like, "There's blood," and it's just <laughs> like California, stay away from here. Um, the, yeah, it's a it's an incredible film. It's so I don't know, like it's like why is this film and not the film that rips it off? You know, what I mean, or does something similar? Like it's all about the weight. It's all about the atmosphere. And I think yeah. Howard Shore's score is. Like, I ain't listening to this in work, you know? No and fucking way. Like, it's, it's scary. Like, we were even saying during the playback there that it was terrifying in itself, just, like, hearing that and how, like... Hot, like it it's just, used perfectly throughout. Like yeah, it, it just, like, crawls up your neck. Like, yeah, it's it really, really, really nasty. It's a scary film. It's a fucking terrifying movie, but I find it very... Like, I wouldn't go as far as to call it a comfort watch, but it's so smartly constructed 
You know, it's yeah. just so watchable. Partial credit to Nine Inch Nails as well, by the way. Of course, you have the remix of Closer in the opening credits. It also ends with a David Bowie song, The Heart's Filthy Lesson. There's even a bit like when they go into the nightclub and like they, for the lust sequence, which is Jesus, um, you get like another piece of music, which I think was done by somebody else. And there's this kind of thumping industrial shit. So yeah, everything, it feels like everything in this movie, including the music, is designed to attack you. That's my number two. Okay. Well, it's a great choice. Um... I'm just trying to think of like how many times I've seen Seven. It's not one that like properly that I properly love, but I I certainly appreciate it and uh, think it's good. So there you go. All right, let me see. I'm trying to remember what my number two is. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna listen to some funky bongos. Let's do this. rather ironic is that this is also a movie that people would say is not a horror movie that is also scored by Howard Shore. It is 1994's Ed Wood, directed by Tim Burton. Now listen, is it a horror movie? Well, it stars Johnny Depp. Well, (laughs) there you go. But is it a horror movie? Technically not, but it is a movie about the making of horror movies, okay? And it's it's a movie about the life, or I should say the career specifically, of Edward D. Wood Jr., the director of Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is arguably on my ra- Mount Rushmore of favourite movies. Um, it's a phenomenal score. Um, it's one that you could properly, you know, I, I, you know, I saw Adam having an owl bop whilst that song played. The marimbas, the bongos. And, you know, there's obviously theremin. I mean, he goes full 1950s on the soundtrack. And, um, yeah, it's, it's one of my all-time favourite movies. And it has a rather poignant performance from the late Martin Landau. Well, an Oscar, I think, Yes, did he? he did. Do you know who he beat to win that Oscar? Oh, what was the year? 94, 95. Correct. Samuel L. Jackson, Pulp Fiction. He beat Samuel L. Jackson. And you know what? I get it. Some would say Samuel L. Jackson deserved it. But look, Martin Landau, you know, for for a lifetime working out, look, Sam, I hope you get that Oscar someday. But that was Martin Landau's year, okay? He is phenomenal as Bela Lugosi. Rick Baker, by the way, did the makeup effects. He did the effects for An American Werewolf in London and various other things, yeah. To create the look of Bela Lugosi. And... Yeah, no, he's, he just, in my opinion, he gives one of the all-time great film performances. And the movie, in many ways, kind of mirrors um, Tim Burton's real-life relationship with Vincent Price, the way Ed Wood and his relationship with um, with Bela Lugosi, you know. So the movie has a real love and tenderness behind it, but it also goes into great detail, the making of Ed, of, uh, I should say, Plan 9 from Outer Space, Bride of the Monster, Glenn or Glenda. And it's just, it's a beautifully shot film. It, I think it certainly deserves to be referred to as an honorary horror flick uh, because there's, 
there aren't that many movies about the making of horror movies. It should know? also be known as well that for anyone who might not know who Ed Wood was, I mean, he was a laughing stock, right? And regarded as a total failure and this movie sucks and like that, that, that was kind of the whole thing. But he kind of in a way gave birth to the cult movie. Yeah, in some ways. He was he was basically a total unknown until he, uh, up until his death in 1972, I think it was. And it, there was a book called the Golden Raspberry Awards or something like that, the Golden Turkey Awards, something like that, that came out in the early 80s that was a very popular book all about terrible movies. And Plan 9 was considered the worst movie of all time. And this led to sort of midnight screenings all across America and the film just found a whole new fanfare. And I think one of the saddest things about this is that Ed would never live to see it yeah. because he absolutely would have relished it. The film, I think, very perfectly captures who the guy was. He was just an, he had an undying love for horror and for the macabre and for the ghoulish and the spooky. And were it not for his alcoholism, he may have lived to have seen his, um, he would have been absolutely happy with people thinking Plan 9 from Outer Space is a daft movie. Because I think it's, you know, the, the term accidental genius, it really is. I mean, I watched that movie in the, the Harathon in the IFI, uh, another shout out to the Irish Film Institute there. And like, the, it was just such a wonderful atmosphere. And I laughed at bits I'd never thought of before. And it's just, it was a wonderful, just like sitting, sitting into a warm bath, you know. Um, and the soundtrack, as I mentioned, really just captures, it captures the madness, it captures the silliness of sort of cheap 50 sci-fi movies. And it's also incredibly moving as well. This being the Ed Wood soundtrack. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Howard Shore is really killing it today. <laughs> it's two in a row for Howard Shore. Who the who thought the Lord of the Rings guy would show up twice in a top five <laughs> horror list? But there you go, Howard, fair play to you. And two movies that people would say are not horror movies as well. Yeah, no, it's a nice little contrast there. Uh, number one for me is definitely a horror movie. And I think it's, I, I feel like time either hasn't been kind to it or certainly, you know, to the titular boogeyman or rather the boogeyman that is haunting the titular area. Uh, here's my number one. That is the main theme from A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984. The score was written by composer Charles Bernstein. And I think it's classic. I think it's a classic film. Wes Craven, of course, bringing Freddy Krueger into the world. Uh, a dream killer, as Paddy mentioned earlier on the show. The, a former child murderer, and uh, depending on which version of the series you're watching it, did worse than that to kids in the movies. Um, he is a horrible... Uh, burned up faced person who like like to totally grotesque over the top makeup effects and has of course a uh, a hand or a gloved hand rather with knives for fingers and when I was a youngun oh god my brother had a poster of this movie in in our in our shared bedroom and I couldn't go into the bedroom he once brought home a standee from a video store of the third one Freddy Krueger's on it I ran into the room to be confronted by this and I threw such a hysterical fit that my father made my brother tear it apart <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I think I was like seven or something. Uh, my brother wasn't happy at all. Um, of course, Freddy Krueger, the, the boogeyman in this movie, he's terrifying in this movie. Uh, later sequels would destroy that. The first three, I think, are pretty, you know, they have a, a bit of merit in them. But by the time, you know, the kind of the mid-90s rolls around, he's this cartoon character. And, you know, not until Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which made an attempt to kind of modernize it, which was kind of a proto-scream. Not perfect, but it has an effect. Robert Englund played him as well. Um, I think he, I think for a time it was genuinely terrifying. I think this music is incredible. Like, I, I think it's just, it's it, there's something, that, it feels like, you know, I think you said this earlier on about something else, but like, it feels like it is stalking you, mm-hmm. which of course is what the character does, killing people in their dreams when they fall asleep. Uh, very effective. The first movie, I think, you know, clearly made on a very low budget but is very very good also has Johnny Depp uh, who exits in spectacular fashion I should say he wears a serious um, low slung um, American football jersey as well he's got a big uh, quiff going on as well yeah <laughs> yes. um, it, it, it's just I, I think it's a great movie I, it's kind of held together by sellotape but it all works mm-hmm. I watched the dreadful 2010 remake there last weekend having twice tried to get through it before and this is a fucking like ninety minute movie, mm-hmm. maybe one of the worst films I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I mean, I think if you look at the evolution of Freddy Krueger, Robert Englund is one of the saintly figures of horror. In and I mean that in the sense that he's such a lovely human being. And I, I, I you know, I have a theory about horror, right? And I, I say this about genre filmmakers, people who work specifically within the genre. I think if you are able to play such a sick character like Freddy Krueger, or if you are able to direct movies like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, or indeed Last House on the Left, or Night, uh, Night of the Living Dead, you have to have a clean conscience. You have to have no skeletons in the closet. Because people always go after the horror fans or the horror, oh, they've got to be sick. Those people, are, I'll tell you who you have to look out for, the quirky people, the cutesy people with ukuleles. They're the ones with the corpses, <laughs> all right? Because if George A. Romero, Wes Craven, Robert Ungland, Gunnar Hansen, who played Leatherface. He was a poet, by the way. Of course, by all accounts, the most softly spoken, gentle, kind to every single person on set. That's my theory. Now, people might say something, what about Stanley Kubrick? What about Roman Polanski? They weren't horror movie directors. They were just people who visited the genre once or twice, all right? They mostly did the other, other such things. But, uh, but that, that, my point is, people who work exclusively within the genre are always across the board super sound. Uh, that, that's my theory, and I'm sticking with it. That's fair. I'm not going to challenge you, even though I'm sure there are many instances of people who aren't very sound to work in horror. But for the most part, <laughs> hopefully, it's like my theory about metal, where I'm like, everyone in metal's great. And I'm like, well, that's not true. Yeah, but there's I, evidence I, to point I, to I've the country. I've just had good yeah. experiences with people from the metal community. It doesn't mean that they're not out there. Anyway, uh, also thankfully not out there is Freddy Krueger haunting my dreams with this terrifying music. That's my number one. Paddy Hanna. Okay. What gets your gold medal of horror? Oh, yeah. Your blood-stained, okay. blood-curdling gold medal. Yeah, let me see. Do I want to give this an introduction or do I just want to say, hit it! of course the one the only Fabio Frizze <laughs> with his wonderful score for I think it was 1982 uh, well who cares City <laughs> of the Living Dead 
Directed by Lucio Fulci. This was the first part of Fulci's Gates of Hell trilogy. Now, I have gone on the record uh, in saying that in some ways Italian zombie horror and cannibal movies saved my life. In a weird way, horror was my comfort uh, blanket and my specific subgenre of comfort to help me through my issues was Italian zombie and cannibal movies. And with the exception of Riz Ortolani, who we discussed earlier, Fabio Frizze is the absolute sort of synth maestro uh, who um, soundtracked um, uh, these wonderful movies. Uh, these admittedly utterly disgusting movies. <laughs> City of the Living Dead. Um, is it my favourite of the Fulci movies? Not necessarily. I probably prefer Zombie Flesh Eaters, a.k.a. Zombie, but... That soundtrack, even though great, is has a couple of patchy moments. I think, generally speaking, City of the Living Dead is his best score, in my opinion. Most people think it's The Beyond, but I think it's City of the Living Dead. Um, the movie, as it were, is essentially what happens is a priest kills himself at the beginning and as a result, accidentally opens the gates of hell. Uh, and, from, and from the gates of hell... As, you, as we've all done on occasion. Exactly. And basically, the gates of hell open up and all heck breaks loose and there's a lot of maggots, there's a lot of squelchy sounds and there is a scene where a woman pukes the cont- all of her internal organs out of her mouth in very gross, squishy, disgusting fashion. There Have are- you enjoyed your lunch there, listening? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Breakfast time, listening, everybody. There are people whose brains are ripped out. Uh, it is uh, violent. It is unpleasant. It is everything you want from a fantastic Italian horror movie. Have you seen it, Dave? I have not. And I think by the description, I don't know if my stomach can take it. It is like, I mean... I don't love zombie movies. I I, I hate to I hate to admit this to you after your heartfelt admission. Yeah? But I just find zombie movies can be a bit limited, no? Well, I'm not going to give you this then. Oh, no? Because, no, I wasn't going to give you it anyways. But uh, this is this was my Bible. Uh, Paddy is holding up a book called Eaten Alive Eaten Alive by He's produced it from his bag uh, Edited by a fellow called Jay Slater And it is a compendium of every single zombie cannibal movie released in Italy There's a bookmark Uh, everybody And it's halfway through the book So you know he's reading Yeah, I actually have the bookmark set to City of the Living Dead uh, If I needed to jump to any reference points Here's a nice picture for you, look Oh my god That guy doesn't have a willy No He's been chopped off It's not great (laughs) Look at that that's uh, Giovanni Lombardo Radius there. Uh, that's a picture from the movie Cannibal Pharaoh, where he famously gets his willy chopped off. And in case you're wondering, he deserved to have his willy chopped off. He's a naughty boy in that movie. But um, yeah, I just, I, uh, City Living Dead, um, it's incre- if you don't like squishy, squelchy, gross kind of stuff, um, the movie he made after it, it was called the, he made a movie called House by the Cemetery, which features a child actor who he's called Bob in the movie. And he's legendary for being the most annoying person in film history. He looks like if me and Junior Brother had a baby as well. And he just goes around saying, I'm Bob. Hi there, I'm Bob. And everyone hates Bob. But, uh, so uh, it's called House by the Cemetery. And um, in House by the Cemetery, they buy a house. And they they discover a basement, and they discover a basement that was um, 
uh, where this doctor called Dr. Freudstein um, used to sort of experiment with corpses. And his name was Freudstein, which is a bit... The exposure there is unbelievable. A bit on the nose. (laughs) Um, So that's, I mean, some people don't love House by the Cemetery. I love it. Then he made The Beyond, which is his metaphysical horror movie based in, I think it's based in uh, New Orleans. And they all involve the gateway to hell, essentially. Um, If you don't like spiders, don't watch The Beyond. There oh, is a really? very because like uh, like I the Beyond's been on my watch list for ages. Well, there Dave, is, it's off now. There is, a, <laughs> there, is, there is a very slow plodding sequence in which a man is sort of engulfed by big hairy spiders, and one of them bites his eye out. I'm out in squelchy. <laughs> I could not be more out. Disgusting fashion. Good night, everybody. By the way, the, the, the like immediate response there, Dave like looked up and like his eyes widened when he was like, "No, no, I, it's been on my watch list." Well, I, imagine, I rec- and then imagine, I recoiled in my chair. But I, imagine you saw that. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to. Of your own volition. Have you seen Enemy starring Jake Gyllenhaal? Um, that's, that's, that's quite a segue. <laughs> Directed by Denis Villeneuve. It's from 2013. It's really good. Wait, is that the one with Hugh Jackman? No, that's Prisoners. Prisoners right. yeah. Enemy is one where Jake Gyllenhaal discovers he has a doppelganger. Oh, right. And there's a spider motif running through the movie. And I could mostly handle it, but I will say without spoilers, that basically the second last shot of the film... Mm-hmm. When I was watching this, and it was in my parents' house back when I, you know, back when I was at home and watching the movie, it's really, really good, and uh, I'm able to handle the spider stuff. It's not too bad. And then at the end of the movie, something happens, and uh, I'll never forget this. I, my back. (laughs) <laughs> my back moved independently of the rest of my body as it tried to escape the chair I was in. Wow. For I recoiled that hard and I genuinely was so shocked. It is <laughs> it is a hard a hard go out there for, <laughs> for fellow arachnophobes. Great well, fucking movie though. Great I, fucking movie. I am not I'm not afraid of spiders because as I've mentioned, I am the Scarlet Goth. And <laughs> I, I, I cavort with the creepy crawlies. It's true. Uh well, listen, thank you for cavorting with us this week. Hey, you don't mention it. It's greatly appreciated. And if you could recommend one horror film that we haven't mentioned on this episode so far, on this very film based episode, not much music, although the music was there as well, you know. But I mean this is kind of how it goes. Uh any any horror recommends uh, beyond okay. what we talked about? Well, I mean Check out all the movies I mentioned if you can. If you want something that's just just fun, straight up just fun. Um, I, off the top of my head, try the Monster Club. If you like kind of like new wave guitar music, and it's also a portmanteau type thing where there's like a different story. It has Vincent Price's in it, and uh, the theme tune to the movie is "Monsters Rule." Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know it's great. Um, so if you want just a fun bit of freaky fun, that 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 that's a uh, give the Monster Club a go. Why the hell not? That's pretty good. Um, what have I been watching lately in terms of horror movies? I'm watching a whole bunch of them. One Missed Call, the Japanese one. That was actually pretty all right. You've mentioned Skinnamarink on the show before. Which is, you were a fan of, I believe. Skinnamarink will fuck you up. Um, yeah, it's incredible. I actually meant, because uh, Tapley was on the show, David Tapley was on the show last week, and I meant to say, I meant to talk about spooky movies with him because he had a he had a day recently where he had, had an incredible triple bill. I think he watched We're All Going to the World's Fair, Skinnamarink, and something else which escapes me right now. Mm-hmm. Skinnamarink is great. you got to have patience for it, though. Abstract horror from this year, in which very little happens at a very slow pace. Uh, but throw your headphones on, put your phone down the sink, and watch this fucking <laughs> movie. And in the dark as well. You have to. You can't watch it during the day. Mm-hmm. That's uh, And I will, I will ding David Tapley for that, because he watched it with curtains open during the day, which is an act of cowardice that can never be forgiven. Anyway... <laughs> 
What about you, Adam? You said that you don't love horror movies. No, not really. Like, I, it's just something I've never really connected with, I think. Have you seen It Follows? I have not. You love it. I will check it out. Great score, really good, questionable ending, but, you know, I think it's one that you would watch. Yeah, just like, it's nice hearing about it kind of with a blank slate, because I, I'm getting, like, from from Paddy, who's very much, you know, into the world of of the horror film and, like, the kind of ones that that do date back into the 80s and 90s and mm-hmm. even further as well. Um, and then, obviously, there's some modern throw-ins there from yourself, Dave, as well. So it's nice to just have, have a little bit of colour in that regard because it just, like, always watching a horror film, I would have kind of never really felt any particular way like they wouldn't make me uncomfortable or tough guy over here like huh? not even <laughs> I think I, I don't even know what it is like uh, I I wouldn't be uh, averse to a jump scare or anything like that like I wouldn't that would do like definitely get me but I'd always kind of just be like eh. you know I find more joy in like real grit give me something close to reality and I love that stuff okay fair I enough. think you know what actually give Ghost Watch a go I'm definitely going to give Ghostbusters. Yeah, it's Halloween. It's very Halloween centric. The fact that it literally scared a nation and that like there were ten thousand complaints about it <laughs> and that it was bought up in the news like a shocking movie scared a nation. Uh, a, a person died after seeing it. Um, yeah, someone literally died after seeing it. And uh, somebody, somebody. I think they tried to sue the BBC because they. They needed new pants after they shit themselves. Incredible! What a way to end the podcast, everybody. That's Paddy Hanna. He's very busy with music. You should check out all this stuff. Outramon, Paddy Hanna. All the uh, links will be in the show notes, by the way. Yes, for everything. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, have a, have a, have a happy Halloween, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely. And uh, my, my knight in shining armour who protects me from ghosts on the regular. And by ghosts, I mean technical glitches. It's Sonic <laughs> Architect Adam. Glad to be here. Glad to be uh, putting the plasma shield around the podcast and diverting away all of those zombies and ghouls. Right, I'm going to go think about nice things now. Goodbye. This has been No Encore. My name is Dave Hanratty. This has been No Encore. There will be No Encore. Take care and happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah.